and then like maybe like summarize the the book and then we can just go from there yeah okay cool sure okay. Um, my name is colin i study philosophy at boston university and i guess it's stony brook university and i work on existentialism and phenomenology i'm a bit of a newcomer to SART, so this is a fun will be a fun experience okay good and you also read french uh, poorly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not reading this in French. I actually was thinking of buying copies in French, but um, just yesterday. Okay. Uh, but I, I did not. That's so great. I love that. That's really awesome. Um, sometimes I just listen. My learning French right now is just listening to French podcasts when I'm driving, and that's that's the extent of my study. So I'm not sure how helpful that is, but that's what I'm trying to do. So um, I'm Elizabeth Schilling. I have a PhD in religion that I received from Claremont Graduate University in 2014 and um, I teach at a state college. I teach composition, literature, creative writing, also intro to philosophy when they let me but otherwise ethics and um, yeah I got interested in western philosophy during the pandemic and I'm just kind of randomly going through the canon so yeah. So that's me. Yeah, actually, Colin, do you you probably would be a better person to summarize the book. Um, do you do you want to summarize it? Um, are we only doing the first half today? Yeah, I mean, we can. I finished okay. the book. I don't know how how far did I, you get. I have okay, not. Okay, yeah, no worries. Um, <laughs> if I hadn't been sick for five days, I would have been able to. Yeah, I'm so person. sorry. No, it's yeah. When life happens, you know. It puts yeah. everything on pause. No, we'll just, yeah, we can, like, do what you suggested. Start from, like, the beginning, uh, chapter yeah. by chapter, and we'll just see. I'm sure yeah. we're not going to get that far anyway, you know? Did you watch any of the uh, miniseries? Yeah. I didn't. I mean, I watched, like, um... I watched a little bit. Yeah, I watched a little bit just to see. Okay, every, yeah. everyone looks different than I would have thought. They would have, like, Daniel, Same. like, looks like a respectable no. gentleman. <laughs> I agree. Not someone who would kill his cat. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so I don't know. But, um, and I thought, I thought like, Ivich, are we saying her name Ivich? I don't quite sure if that's... Um, like, there is not a way to say her name that sounds good to me. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Yeah, Ivich was, like, much, I'd say, looked much older than Ivich. Yes. <laughs> I was, and much more respectable, less, much less, you know, flighty. French teenager. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's that's pretty much. I, I think it was like the 1980s. So the BBC in the 1980s, yeah. I think, is like wants to be respectable and serious. I agree. This is this is yeah. art, right? So yeah. yes, yes. I found Brunet kind of terrifying, though. Honestly, I mean, I literally just watched like a minute of each scene, but I found Brunet kind of terrifying in his like intensity. Yeah, I was just curious. I want to see what each character looked like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, probably. You know, I will. I'm glad that I know that it exists. So thanks for finding it. It was total luck. Total luck. Yeah. It's a, they do all three books too, which is kind of interesting. They do. There's six episodes that do the first book, three episodes for the second, and three episodes for the third. The third which is kind oh of wow! Okay, so. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hey. I, I'm definitely interested in the whole, like, yeah. trilogy, so. Maybe, I don't know if we'll do it next, maybe eventually. Yeah, but, um, for sure. Anyway. Cool. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about the, 
I mean, so the book is about Matthew. I think maybe we'll call him Matthew, who um, is a French philosophy professor, and yeah, that's and it's kind of just about his day to day life. Um, yeah, I don't know. How do you want to do this? Do you want to go through each chapter? Yeah, or? definitely. Um, yeah. Okay. So I don't know if you want to start or you want me to start. So I guess I mean I could do chapter okay. one. Um, maybe we can yeah. So chapter one, we meet Matthew, who's a philosophy professor, professor in Paris in, I think, 1938. Yeah, 1938. And um, he has an interaction with a homeless guy who, you know, encourages him to go to Madrid. And then he meets with his girlfriend, who it turns out is pregnant and he wants her to get an abortion. And that's kind of the impetus for the whole story. That's like, that's the ball that gets the whole thing rolling, I would say. Um, Matthew's quest to get, to find a doctor and to get money, etc., for his girlfriend to have an abortion. Right, yeah, that, that just kind of like creates the, and storyline for the, the whole book um so yeah so yeah. i actually had a question for you about that um and i think maybe in our other conversations like often we might yeah. we might have talked about it or you might have asked this but what do you think uh the role of pregnancy and abortion play in the book is it just another example of a decision concerning one's freedom or is there something because, you know, I mean, in this time in France, abortion is illegal, so it could very much be, um, you know, taken up as a topic of social justice, etc. Um, so, but do you see it as that, or is it just kind of, kind of non-essential in the sense of, of what Matthew is dealing with internally, I guess? I think it plays a bunch of different roles. I can give you a few of them, the ones that pop into my mind, but um, but I'm not sure I really nailed it down. Because uh, I, I think you're right. It, it is really, I mean, it's really interesting, right? I mean, it's 1938, and abortion is a hot topic, just like in 2023. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it has quite the same significance, though. I think, I mean, so I think part of the issue, I think, okay, so one issue is that um, having a child is, um, I think for Matthew, having a child would mean, um, being locked into a relationship with his girlfriend, Marcel. So I think, um, like it would, if, if he, they decided, if she decided to keep the child, he would feel an obligation to either marry her or at least take you know, take care of her or whatever, and um, so her being pregnant, I think, forces him to choose between either committing to Marcel or and commit yeah committing to being with Marcel in a relationship or committing to remaining free um, of that commitment. So I, I think that's one of the things. One of the things. Right. Yeah. So that makes me think. 
so what then would be the reasons for Matthew? What like why is he having this sort of crisis? Is it a crisis of morality or ethics that it's it's what he wants to do to kind of selfishly uh, keep his freedom from commitment? He doesn't want to commit. He wants to be free. He wants to be um, just open to the possibility and stay in that state. Um, versus what he thinks he should do. Like, do you think that Matthew has struggles with, I guess, like ethics, being ethical towards others, and that is always in opposition to what one wants to do selfishly? I think that's a very interesting question. Um, and I'm not sure of the answer. But I, I so... I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I, I don't get a lot of ethical struggle in, in Matthew, but I'd be curious to know if you think differently. I think it's more about like social expectations versus like, um, versus like uh, rejecting social expectations. Um, and in that sense, being free. Um, do you see moral conflict in Matthew? Um, I mean, I, on one hand, I don't, because I don't think, it, it doesn't seem to me something that Sartre would do. Like, with the whole thing about abortion, I just don't see um, the book having much uh, social or historical um significance other than the political which since this book is written like or set in the shadows of of the war um there's that but other than the political um when we're talking about like ethics towards others and how we should treat others i don't like i i wouldn't expect that to be in the in the book but i do think that um, Matthew can be said to be in bad faith because he could have a conversation with Marcel, right? Like he's it seems like the yeah. whole book he's avoiding <laughs> having the conversation, and I don't believe that he's just kind of ignorant and like doesn't like is, is oblivious. I don't think that Matthew is oblivious, and so I think he's doing everything he can to distract himself with finding the money, finding the doctor for this abortion. And what he's not doing is the most simple thing, just sitting down and just saying, hey, Marcel, I just want to check in. I know that we had talked about not having kids in the past, but what what are your thoughts? And it takes Daniel, the psychopath, to, uh, to like, and he doesn't have good intentions, but to bring them together and to have that conversation. So it's just like we were talking um, on the phone about the whole, part in being nothingness where you have the woman who is trying to avoid the consciousness of what's really going on because if Matthew did ask then he would have to be responsible and make a decision and why he's not do why he isn't doing that I'm not sure like maybe you can speak to that but I feel like he's in bad faith yeah. with this um yeah I don't know that's a, that's a really that's a really good question um yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't interpreted... So I agree. I mean, Ma Matthew is... Um, he's, 
Yeah, I, no, I, I agree. He definitely is not interested in talking to other people, almost in general, I would say, about, like, his relationships with them. But, um, or at least not with other women. Um, I don't know, maybe we should move on to chapter two? Yeah. And, like, we'll keep, we'll keep talking about this, I guess is what I'm thinking, but keep, um... Yeah, definitely. So, okay, so chapter two is uh, Boris and Lola. We sort of meet those characters. And it's so interesting that every chapter is uh, from a different person's perspective, although we don't get certain perspectives. We don't get chapters from certain people. And I think that that, you know, could be a conversation as well. So um, Lola is, so there's, I guess there's like two age difference uh, relationships, relationships that are based on age difference. So there's Matthew who kind of wants to, uh, but doesn't want to kind of have an affair with uh, the student, Evich. And then Lola, who is, I think she's in her forties and she sings in a, in a nightclub and she has a relationship with Evich's brother actually. So, um, yeah. yeah, so Basically, uh, this chapter I thought was really interesting because we get we get some great quotes from Boris about about that age difference. You know, he says that it's fantastic how old she looks. She doesn't tell her age, but she must be well over 40. He preferred that people who liked him should look old. He found it reassuring, and I thought that was such a, a quirky thing for a young person to to say. And then the other quote um, I had was, she's fantastic, she's ashamed of being in love with me because she's older than I am. It seems perfectly natural to me. After all, one party must be older than the other. Above all, it was more moral. Boris wouldn't have known how to treat a girl of his own age. If both parties are young, they don't know how to behave. They muddle about and it always seems like they're playing house. So I guess the questions that I thought, for you uh, about this is what do you think of the relationships of the age differences in the book? Do the, how do the two these two relationships, Boris and Lola, and then Matthew and Evich, differ or compare? Um, like, is there something different, uh, like morally at stake in both of the relationships? Um, anything we can say about like gender? And uh, what does each person in the pair get out of it? Like, does what does the young person get out of it? What does the older person get out of it? And what is problematic or liberating about these relationships? So. I'm sorry, that's like a really long time. It's kind of like... That, that's okay, a great sorry. question. <laughs> like I don't know. I don't know. It is, it is, it is. It is. That's a really good question. I haven't... I didn't think too much about it. So I'll definitely hear curious what you have just said. It is really interesting that there's two... Gen, that the, the, the two age gap relationships is a young man with an old woman. Older woman helped her. Oh my God, she's... Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, we, you commented on the phone that, like, Star was brutal in this, talking about age frequently. Yeah, I mean, he's um, obsessed with it. He's like, oh, I'm getting old, and, you know, when he has, you yeah. know, it's because he is waiting on making his great act of freedom. But, um, yeah, I mean, bodies are just really viscerally discussed. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting also because, like, Sark was, like, I don't know, in his 30s when he wrote this, and yet he seemed to think of, you know, Matthew, who's also in his 30s, as being ancient, um, like, half-dead or whatever. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Anyways, see, that's I think it's really interesting. It's interesting there are two age gap relationships with different genders, and let me think. The book, the Boris Lowell one. I don't know. What do you think? I mean. I thought more about this, the Matthew and Fish one. Right? Yeah, I mean, that was the one that seems most problematic because he, it really does. when he in the next chapter, I, I think is about, is about them, but um, he says that he's gonna, he's going to, like, he's taking, uh, I guess this is in that, like, we could wait to talk about this, but one comment yeah. was that he's gonna punish her by kissing her, and it's like he both, with Evich, he both knows that he's making her uncomfortable and but he and he judges himself for it but he doesn't yep. keep from doing that you know so he he's not that's another example of him not necessarily i don't know if he's in bad faith with evich but he's not treating her well i agree so the boris um, and Lola one seems less problematic and i don't know if that is problematic in itself because then because there's you know, I think currently in, you know, 2023, talking about consent, talking about, um, I mean, the conversation has been raised that while um, young women are often, uh, I guess, protected, especially in relationships with older men, like that's been spoken about, like, is the, is the older man being predatory? That same, that same sort of protection needs to be extended to younger men as well in relationships with, you know, whether it's hetero or, or what. Um, but, but it's sort of, it's sort of, so it's sort of problematic if it's portrayed as not, as not problematic. And uh, I mean, I don't want to be like a moral judge to Sartre's novel, but it's just, it's just interesting that when the younger person is the female, it's more explicitly problematic than the, because the, the one between Boris and Lola, Boris doesn't seem like he's a victim at all, to me. No, no, if, I mean, if anything, he, he thinks he Yeah, lost. right, <laughs> Lola's the victim. Yeah, yeah, he treats her like that, doesn't yeah. he? Um, well, let's get, let's get to the image one in a bit. Let, let's yeah. see, if, let me think about okay. this for just a moment. Um, yeah, I mean, so also Lola hates Matthew, which I'm not. I just want to. Yeah. That. Um, also, I mean, it's also interesting because um, I'm sorry, Boris is <laughs> like hates growing older. Yeah, I mean, I think he even says that he's you know going to make sure that he doesn't live past like 25 because that would just be 25. tragic. <laughs> Yeah, he'll blow his brain out. He's got five years. Um, yeah. I guess, yeah, but I don't, yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I don't feel like I have a lot to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily either. I just, yeah, I just think that you know, it just stood out to me that we have those those relationships. So maybe, maybe we'll think about it yeah. about it later but Lola just seems to me I always as a I used to 
to do like theater when I was an undergrad and I always yeah. when I read books that are so dramatic like this I mean Sartre's yes. novel almost seems, seems theatrical and I just kind of like choose the character that I might portray Lola seems like a Blanche Dubois from Streetcar Named Desire like she's she's aging and she really cares about her appearance and she wants a younger lover and she's kind of fragile yeah. and that makes you think of like why she um maybe doesn't like Matthew either because maybe she knows that Matthew like will analyze her and maybe she's afraid that she doesn't want to be found out in a sense like she is kind of she wants to keep up the image that makes her feel comfortable about herself and she's always at risk of losing it maybe Matthew's just like too smart she thinks yeah that's interesting so there's another kind of so I think you're identifying another um, person in bad faith um, and another maybe in kind yeah. of bad faith yeah. there also yeah that's right? a good point absolutely she doesn't want to because being in good faith is confronting what is in reality and she is holding yeah. on to I guess her own youth and being a yeah. singer you know it's important that she's beautiful and glamorous and seductive because when her career is over you know I think she probably feels like her life is over and when her ability to be sort of in love is over yeah yeah I agree so do you do you want to go on to the next chapter yeah chapter three um so in chapter three um, Matthew goes to his friend's Sarah's yes. house to find um, to see if she can find him a doctor to for to perform an abortion for Marcel. And at the house, he meets Brunet, who is an old school friend from, yeah, an old school friend, one of Matthew's old school friends. And I'm just going to pause for a and say that I believe we are surrounded by Matthew's old school friends. Um, Brunei, um, Daniel, right? Um, oh man, who's the third one? I mean, his brother is, is there, but... Is this Jacques? Yeah, Jacques is his brother. There was... Is there someone else? Okay, and, and there's one of them is wait, there's I think it's four because it's the, the they're the musketeers. So one of them in one of them is Gomez, oh, that's right. yes. who is Sarah's mm, husband. Okay, right, yeah. And, and Gomez is fighting in Spain for the republics for the Republicans, I believe. And I I don't know enough about the Spanish Civil War, honestly. Um. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that he, I mean, I guess, I don't know, is there, is there a backstory with Marcel, how he met her? I don't know, that's a good question. I didn't notice one, have no, you? No, I mean, I, I think the book just said that they had been in a relationship for seven years or something, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is interesting, like, thinking about, um, you know, what these, what these, re- these relationships would represent for 
from his childhood, if they would all represent maybe a path that he could have taken but didn't. Like sometimes we think about our childhood yeah. relationships like that. I, I like that. I, and I think Brune, I mean, so as I read Brune, so Brune is uh, a communist and a very committed communist. Yes. And um, Gomez is obviously a committed anti-fascist also because he's in Spain. And do we, I don't think we meet Gomez, or do we? I have Gomez, have you? Um, I mean, yeah, Gomez is not one of the characters that really like, stood out to me a lot. I think, yeah, I don't even know if he's like actually in the book or if he is just referred to. Um, yeah. So, uh, you, and, and Daniel's the homosexual. Yes. That's so yes, curious. but also Marcel's like lover. The lover yeah. you yeah. I guess yeah. is right there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um Okay, so this chapter So um there's a couple interesting things I think in this chapter. One is that I mean, so Brune and Matthew are old friends, but there's a fair amount of tension in their relationship currently. Um, mainly because Brune is a committed communist and a committed member of the Communist Party and doesn't, and Matthew is not. And Brune pretty clearly divides the world into committed communists and everybody else. Yeah. That's how I read it. Um, and so he doesn't trust Matthew. He doesn't, I, it's not even really clear he respects, I don't think he respects him at all, honestly. <laughs> he thinks of him as a, I mean, I think that's a kind of a continuing trend. He thinks of him as a, as a fence-sitting bourgeois with vague communist sympathies, but unwilling to commit to anything. Um, Brene's a bit paranoid also because he sees he 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 sees spies, possible spies everywhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. What did do yeah. you wanna like I can keep talking. You go. Um well yeah, I, I think that the the contrast is really interesting. Um because it everything makes Matthew reflect and he's always vacillating and trying to detect almost um I guess well I don't know I don't know how to finish that actually but he he does seem like neurotically in his head and um, he says that uh one of the quotes that I had was um for 34 years, I've been sipping at myself, and I'm getting old. I have worked, I have waited, I have had my desire. Marcel, Paris, independence, and now it's over. I look for nothing more. And he, in this chapter, he reflects about his commitment to freedom in the past. Um, he oh, says yeah. he has... What page are you on? Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, 63. 63. 
Okay. He had said to himself, I will be free, or rather, he hadn't said anything at all. But that was what he wanted to say, and it was the nature of a bet. So he's like, he's like yep. 18 or however old he is, an adolescent, saying, I'm going to be free or, you know, nothing or bust. I shall achieve my salvation. Ten times, a hundred times, he had made that same bet. The or bet. The words changed to suit his intellectual attitudes, but it was one and the same. But what bet? He no longer really knew. And I thought it was really interesting. I, I thought actually of myself when I was in high school and my, you know, instead of freedom, my salvation or the thing that I wanted the most was authenticity. I don't know why I was so obsessed or preoccupied with it or if I even knew what it meant to me at the time, but I just wanted to be authentic. Now, looking at my like childhood family relations, I kind of understand that a little bit more, but, um, but I think it's, it's so interesting how people can get kind of hung up in this, you know, the, uh, the, the trilogy is called roads to freedom. And it seems like being able to figure out what freedom is and whether it's attainable or not is kind of the preoccupation of Matthew during the whole book. So I think that, um, yeah, so I thought that that was interesting also that he has so much regret and despair. So, so I don't know. I mean, I guess I would ask you, what is freedom for Sartre? Since I know you, I have read being in nothingness, but you have, what is, um, maybe, or maybe being in nothingness doesn't uh, talk about this, but is freedom an act? Is it, because it seems like it's almost something that's impossible and contradictory to uh, being in good faith. Because if being in good faith, being a, a reflective consciousness, is always being open, always being mobile, never really, um, you know, having blindness, a blind passion towards anything, never forgetting yourself. Um, but it seems like within the essence of what a commitment means, that you have to have faith and belief in it. So it's like Matthew is uh, is preoccupied with doing this, with rationally deciding one act that would emphasize and manifest his freedom. But the thing is, is that act doesn't exist if you want to be a reflective consciousness, or does it? It just seems like he wants what he doesn't want. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Well, let me. I'm gonna say. Let me just say a couple things in response. I think one thing that's kind of interesting is like the the translation of the name of the trilogy. I think is the. Oh, okay. Um, one thing. So, I I actually think a maybe better translation would be something like "Freedom's Roads" or "The Roads of Freedom" or something like that. Does not implying that freedom is a destination. Um, though I think it may also be a destination. Just to be clear. But, uh, but also that it's the road everyone's on. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that, that would definitely and be I, more what, like, the mature Matthew would say. Um, and then maybe, like, the immature the, Matthew is stuck within feeling it's a destination. I think, and I guess the other thing I think is that, I mean, yeah, being in nothing, this is all about freedom. And I think that I guess one of the important, most important things to think about, or when I think about Sartre, is that 
know, freedom is fundamental for sort consciousness doesn't, you know, freedom isn't just one, isn't one of the properties of consciousness or subjectivity. It just is subjectivity. Subjectivity is freedom. And so even when you're in bad faith, you're still free. The free choice is to be free, that you have freely chosen to be in bad faith. Um, and that's what also allows you to always get out of bad faith because you're always free to get out of it. Um, is that so yeah so I don't think so it is true that Matthew is stuck but I think that so I mean if we take that as a background then we can see that you know he's constantly given choices he's constantly making choices that um, stop him from being free that I mean let, let me think that make they keep him in bed faith that, so he's freely choosing to not confront the situation. I guess that's that. That to me is like maybe the core um, idea. And he's doing it again, and again, and again, and again, again. Right. Yes, he he is. But it, it just doesn't seem like a satisfying way to uh, to live. Right. Yes. Why, why, why do you say that? Um, because he he seems as if Matthew seems to be a character that's perpetually in distress. He is, um, he's, he's almost imprisoning himself in an indulgence of thought and reflection, but it's not, but his reflection isn't knowledge. It's not an epistemological tool to help him come to clarity and some sort of like relief. Um, he's, he's instead of just asking people what they think he is wondering what they think and he's always judging himself and he feels as if he is not fulfilling something that he really wants because or it seems that way to me because he's always saying that well it's almost too late or i've wasted my life i'm sipping away at my life and so it doesn't seem satisfying it almost makes a case a case for ignorance is bliss yeah, I, I think that's right. But he's also, mis- but, but like you said, he's also miserable in his ignorance. Um, I, do you think that? Right, well, I mean, if there are levels of enlightenment, then, you know, the, the, the first or the, yeah. the, the least enlightened level, I think, to Sartre and Matthew is being, you know, blindly committed and faithful to something and having absolute certainty and never wavering, never revisiting those decisions, never contemplating, never reevaluating. That's the, that's the ignorance that is blissful, but is, you know, is completely unwanted. Matthew doesn't want that. I think that Matthew is unaware of the level of his ignorance um, that he is at, but yes, he is he is not exact. I, I think he has some kind of bliss. He has he has some kind of um, enjoyment in the fact that um, he can he can make decisions, and he has these momentary I think joys um, where he's free. But mostly, yes, he's he's miserable. But yeah, this is such a great couple pages that you um, zeroed in on. Um, can I, can I look at a few, bring up a few Yeah, I love that. Okay, so, um,
I, one thing I thought that, that helped me think about what he meant by freedom, and maybe how, I don't know if like the word extreme is quite the right word, but how extreme the concept is, is on page 62 when he talks about the vase. Oh, okay. Um, uh, he says, on the table there were some tattered magazines and a handsome Chinese vase, green and gray with handles like paraclaws. Uncle Jules had told him that, that the vase was 3,000 years old. Matthew had gone up to the vase, his hands behind his back, and stood nervously a tiptoe looking at it. How frightening it was to be a little ball of bread crumb in this ancient firepot world confronted by an impassive vase 3,000 years old. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, he had turned his back to it, stood grimacing and snuffling in the mirror without managing to divert his thoughts. That he had suddenly gone back to the table, then he had suddenly gone back to the table, picked up the vase which was a heavy one, and dashed on the floor. Um, he had thought, I did it, and felt quite proud, freed from the world without ties or kin or origins. A stubborn little excrescence that had burst the terrestrial crust. Starts a really good writer. Um, I think that what I thought was interesting is I do think that there's a sense of, like, no, uh, for freedom of, like, no rules, not doing what this other people expect of you not doing what they ask of you. Fucking convention. Um, and I think you see that there's another passage in which he talks about praise that he describes the freedom a thief has in who steals some bread or something, I don't remember, of not following rules. Um, so I guess I'm thinking that freedom, there's multiple meanings of freedom in Sartre. Okay. There's this kind of existential freedom which is just our ultimate ability to choose, to be fully responsive, to be at the absolute source of our actions and choices. And then there's freedom from social norms, a kind of, maybe kind of anarchism. Um, it's like maybe a political or um, freedom. And then I sometimes wonder if there's a kind of interpersonal freedom. I noticed that, like, Matthew really doesn't like it when people put him in a box. Um, I don't remember where it was, but he... Was it Matthew? No, it was Daniel. Like, Daniel hates it too. Daniel, like, he's a regular at some bar or whatever. And, like, the guy says something like... Um, this is much later on, but, uh, you know, you know, t- takes him, like, categorizes him as the, the person who buys this drink, and Daniel doesn't like to be categorized, and so he doesn't buy the drink. He's, you know, that's not his drink, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. No, I, yeah, no, I love that. I love the different kinds of freedoms, doing something in opposition of what other people want, and even... I think there's a little bit doing in opposition of what you want. I, I can't remember where it was. Yeah, that's an interesting in point. The, in, in the, the book, but there is, there is something about that, um, you know, uh, to, to go against even what you want to do would be, like, a, a freedom. And I, and I like the way you're articulating an interpersonal, the interpersonal freedom, um, which, you know, maybe what I think stands out to me a lot um, just the, the avoidance of 
commitment because it seems like okay so Matthew is continually choosing um, but he's always it seems like he's always saying no or he's most often saying no he he doesn't have the, the yes choices I'm actually reading um, uh, a disgraceful affair by Bianca Lambin it's the it's one of the students that Sartre de Beauvoir had a relationship with and after she read uh, de Beauvoir's letters she was really angry at how uh, Simone de Beauvoir was talking about her but she she says um, she she reflects on a time where Sartre was going accepted an invitation from Gabrielle Marcel to give a lecture on promises and he was trying in a taxi ride over he was trying to figure out what to say and one of the main ideas of the speech was a free conscious a free conscience cannot make promises because it cannot sign away its own future freedom it cannot override its freedom it follows that one can never make a promise or commit oneself and I just like I thought that was was so interesting and I think that I don't know maybe some people reading this novel can relate I mean it is it is sort of a story that people tell that you know oh the the bachelor whoever doesn't want to get married because he wants to be free or you know you don't want to have children because you want to be free or but he has but Matthew has made decisions he has made commitments he just doesn't tend to reflect on those you know I think Jacques kind of points it out and Boris kind of points it out but he has made a decision to live in an apartment instead of a hotel to be in an affair with Marcel to you know to be a, a teacher and to continue his profession he just doesn't reflect on those beyond you know judging himself for bourgeois choices yeah i um one of the things that one of the passages that i i was very confused by the first time i read it was the beginning of the book where he meets the homeless guy oh, yeah. and the homeless guy i i i I think I've kind of decided there's like two components to that meeting. The first component is the postcard to Madrid, from Madrid, yeah. whatever. And the second one is him wanting to get a drink with, with Matthew or whatever it is. Um, and I think the Madrid pass, the Madrid um, postcard, like, you know, it symbolizes going and fighting fascists, right? So committing to being an anti-fascist. And the drink is just going out for a drink with a friend, with someone. And in both cases, Matthew dem demurs. Um, in both cases, he instead sticks to his habits, sticks to what he does every day, every whatever, three days, four days a week, and goes to see his girlfriend. And, but his reaction I mean, I think if Vich gets Ivich, I mean, that's a bit later. He, but he's not committed to Marcel either. He does things out of habit. He does things maybe because they're the easy things to do. I'm not sure because he's done them before. I am. Uh, I think Jacques accused him of that, but so does Ivich at very points. Maybe we should move on to the Ivich chapter. 
but um, I, I guess I'm I guess I'm kind of wondering if the bad faith if you know Matthew's in bad faith partially because there's like on the one hand he I mean I guess I'm kind of I guess I'm agreeing with Jacques to some extent you know he is lives a very middle class bourgeois French existence but he's not committed to being a bourgeois he has he has communist sympathies he's got anti-fascist sympathies um he's kind of trying to play both sides um yes yeah yeah I I think exactly one of my thoughts was exactly that. It's like he wants his cake and to eat it too, as the saying goes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, yeah, I, that's absolutely right. And like... But I have yeah. sympathy yeah. for but, Matthew. But oh, same. go ahead. Me too. <laughs> no, good, you go. I agree. I agree, me too. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I have sympathy for Matthew, though, because once you are of, you know, sort of a mind where you're aware and you realize that the level of uncertainty for most of our truths in the world that are, you know, kind of existential and really important, um, that level of uncertainty is pretty high. Um, it's very nice to be in a, in a place where you can believe something or have faith in something or commit to something, but it's very difficult to maintain your rationality and awareness in that. It's almost like you have to have a double consciousness. You have to be an agnostic almost to anything you commit to, whether that's a relationship or a religion or your profession, that you're doing the right thing or whatever it is, you have to have a double consciousness. And that's just not a very comfortable place to live. But, but you, so why do you have to have a double consciousness? Um, you have a double consciousness because you can't, as a, as a sort of knowing person, um, you can't throw yourself completely with blind faith into something because, um, because your, your sort of scientific mind or your knowing mind can always rationalize or question or deconstruct, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the perpetual, you know, never landing the ungrounded ground of the postmodern writer who is just constantly deconstructing everything, you know, Derrida or someone, <laughs> or Butler. Do you think, I think one thing that, I, I don't want to answer, I'm not sure we should try to answer this question today, but a question I have, I, I realized yesterday that, like, I've been, I've been really, um, we, you know, we're, you know, I've been reading this novel as being very critical of Matthew waffling and unable to commit, um, and I think that's more or less correct, but, I mean, with, though it's also, I think, meant to be descriptive, like, Matthew's not a bad person, he's a normal right. person, um, very that's in fact one of the you know one of the points he just lives a normal bourgeois teacher life he's a professor you know um but and it, and the book also seems to praise i think brunet and gomez for their commitments uh, but i guess what i wonder is like is 
Sartre's solution to bad faith, is it just kind of a mindless commitment? Like, is it a don't think, do? Is that his, is that his, is that the authentic life for Sartre? I guess, yeah, that's what's been weighing up. Well, because, and I think that, my reason why I'm being puzzled by that is Sartre is a philosopher, and he clearly puts a lot of value in reflection. Um, yeah, and, and, and you made me think of that with your discussion of uh, Matthew's reflectiveness. Well, yes, okay, so there's, I think maybe there's two ways or two paths your reflections can, can make, can take. I think there's, I, I think Sartre does want us to be aware and he wants us to reflect. That's the mind that's in good faith. But reflections, just like imagination, our conscious musings, can go down the path of, you know, solipsistic wallowing in a fantastical self and life, or to be in like this sort of passive, unengaged inertia, or it can take the path of being an engaged consciousness, which I don't think Sartre really like outlines in this book, so I'm not sure I'm able to like say what that is, but I have this idea that there is an engaged reflectiveness that Matthew is just kind of missing. Yeah, okay, hopefully. Let's let's open to the next (laughs) Shall we talk about uh, Matthew and Kivich? Yeah, definitely. I think I let's let's do that. Okay, so um, and so, <laughs> so this is weird. <laughs> and so maybe uh, maybe we'll talk about this uh, chapter, and then we have we have a listener, Dave. Um, did you, Dave? Did you want to chime in as okay. well? Sorry, yeah. I'm gonna invite to speak. She forgot herself from one minute to the 
next. She forgot to eat, she forgot to sleep. One day she would forget to breathe and that would be the end. And I feel like Matthew has kind of a, it's like, has a battle within him because he is, uh, he says at one point when she, I can't remember what she said or what she did, but um, something happened and it changed the way, I mean, Matthew, I think his feelings are always fluctuating. And so he said, he says that he felt both remorseful and relieved because he was less attracted to her. Or he'll say something like, I, I like he realizes he didn't desire her, but he knows he's going to. And so... So I don't know, like I just would love for you to comment and help me figure out like what what does Matthew, I mean, I think Matthew even asks, or he says on page 66, I don't know what I want from her. So so what is what is the role? Um, and he also like calls her a catastrophe. Um, so so yeah, so what what does Matthew want and what does what does Evish like represent for us and for Matthew? Um, can, can I make a brief suggestion that we talk about the two individual? I mean, there are two chapters. Oh, yeah, time, okay. And there's this one where they're at the coffee shop, and then there's the next one, not this one, but the one after where they're at the, the cocaine chapter. Right, six. and they have um, a knife, and like she pierces herself, and then so Matthew does the same. Yeah. Yes. I think. Yeah, I, so I was just thinking about yes, this yesterday. Cause like, I find Ivich a really annoying character. Oh, okay. <laughs> do, do you not? I mean, she's like, like, I mean, what, 17, 18? I mean, she, she can't be anything other than that. I think so, <laughs> but like, well, no, okay, so why did I think that? Okay, so I find her an annoying character. Um, and I think I told you this, that you know, she's based on the, I mean, people say she's based on this complicated threesome relationship he and Beauvoir had with a teenager. Um, and Beauvoir also wrote a fictionalized version of the same girl in her book, She Came to Stay, who I found also found it all. Um, but I, I think it's an interesting question. Like, why? What? Illich is interesting because she seems to be both an idiot and also very perceptive. Um, she also is, um, yeah, so I think of Ivich's, like, main, like, primary characteristic as being spontaneity. Maybe a mix of narcissism, but I think of those two things, maybe, I want to put the, focusing on the spontaneity for a moment. Like, he says in multiple places that, you know, Ivich, um, image is flighty she changes her mind constantly um are you okay um she's uh, on the bottom of 70 um she says no i don't really but it is a fact that i just can't picture my future it's a blank she said no more and matthew eyed her in silence um it was true that she had no future. Image at 30, image at 40 didn't make any sense. There was nothing ahead of her. Um, I'm not sure exactly what I'm 
fun together. Yeah, I mean, that quote is really interesting because but, for Sartre, our freedom is in our future, right? And this doesn't have yeah, a future. Yeah. yeah, right. So, okay, so, so to, to put my kind of, to kind of put a question the other way, I, I think of it as being very spontaneous. She maybe like called her play, she wants to do this, she changes her mind, she does that, she wants to do this, you know. Is she gonna go home? Is she gonna go to the forest? Is she gonna go to the coffee shop? Does she wanna see the exhibit? Does she not want to see the exhibit? You, it's really hard to pin her down. And she changes her mind really, really fast. Um, does that sound right? sounds like me and I'm 41 <laughs> so I don't know what that says about me but yeah hard, hard to pin down I guess but um, I just want to say you guys are doing great so keep it up and uh, yeah Thanks. I'm learning a lot and I uh, feel like I feel like my TV or this is about to get longer so I'm not sure if I should thank you for that anyway that's all I wanted to say so thank you so much oh, okay. Thanks. Thanks I, I have to say one of the things that I feel like is really hard to get across about this book is that there are so many just interesting sentences that just that just fly by, I find. That, um, uh, you know, do you know, have you noticed that Elizabeth, that like, uh, I just feel like there's so, like, there's just so many little moments that I think are fascinating that are not like obviously what the whole book is about, but just really nice turns of, really nice little descriptions, really nice little, I don't know, Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I was trying to think of like if I if I thought that too. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I wish I would have mentioned them, but just his some of his descriptions. You know, like the uh, like the end of the day in Paris was like fell upon you know humanity or the crowds as like a, a moonlight like falling on. Obviously, I'm not such a but. <laughs> Like, no, exactly. Yeah. When he's like talking about like the landscape or something. Yeah, and, and there's this whole discussion of like when they look at the paintings, 
and with that, the, you know, the freedom of interpretation. Um, but wait, let me say just one more thing about the image. So what I think is really interesting, though, is does... Uh, what does Matthew see? In, I mean, no, hold on, wait. So you have... So she seems really spontaneous, but I don't think she's free, or she's not authentic, maybe that's a better way of putting it. Um, she's like almost too spontaneous because she has, like you said, she has no future. Um, but she also, I'm not sure she's weighed down by her habits either. Um, right, well, I mean, all of us are in you know, when we're that young. I mean, science says that our our brains are completely formed until we're like 25 right and so if you if you can only be free when you can truly reflect when when when